The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. Our mental health struggles and strengths, they all lie on a spectrum. Many of the people we speak to on the show have serious diagnosable conditions, and many others don't. But they're still moving the conversation forward, whether by giving us new frameworks for ideas, new psychological ways to think about the world, talking about how they run their own organizations differently, or just being open and honest about their experiences in life and work. Today's guest is someone I've admired for a long time, and she's built a brand around happiness. Happiness is not my strong suit, (laughs) but Gretchen approaches happiness in a really authentic way. It's not the fake, sunshiny, everything is always great kind. It's the kind of happiness that is more like contentment, the feeling that you're living a fulfilling life and that you're evolving. You're working on checking in with yourself and people around you. She's endlessly curious about what makes humans tick. Gretchen Rubin runs a media company. She's an author of many books, including The Four Tendencies, Better Than Before, and The Happiness Project. And she hosts the podcast Happier with Gretchen Rubin. Gretchen, hi. Hello. I'm so happy to be talking to you. Well, okay, I'm going to tell you something crazy that I have so many positive associations with your work. I have always wanted to talk to you. My two most favorite associations, going going a little bit in the Wayback Machine, was when you made your wonderful video, The Days Are Long, But the Years Are Short. Yes. What inspired you to make that video, actually? Because you're not known as a parenting writer or author. Or... Well, you know, it really it, it was very true to my own life. Like, spoiler alert, the video is just about realizing that you're sort of always trying to think like, oh, let's skip ahead. Like, I don't, I don't want to have to use a stroller and I don't want to have to ride the bus to school. And, but then you look back and you realize like, well, that's life itself. And so I write about, you know, this bus ride that I took with my daughter when she was in preschool. And that just was something that I actually experienced in my own life. And it's something that I battle with to this day. I'm writing a book about the five senses. So again, I'm using the five (laughs) senses to try to like, Notice what's happening in front of you. Be present. Don't take things for granted. Um, it's, I think it's one of the big challenges of my life. So that's why I wrote that. Well, it's one of the big challenges of everyone's life. Yeah. I mean, uh, so much on this show, I hear from people who their bodies went wrong before they realized that they had yes. an anxiety disorder yes. or depression or, or whatever. Yes, No, cueing into your body is so important because a lot of times there are these tells, you know, just like in poker, there are tells where people show whether they have a good hand or a bad hand. I think our own bodies are often like trying to cue us Mm -hmm. if we're paying attention and not just sort of like, you know, overwriting what messages we're supposed to be getting. You've got to tune in. And I think that's what your video, that's why it's so powerful, because essentially that's what you're saying. Tune in in yeah. to what's happening now. And and I have to say, as an anxious person, like that is my supreme challenge in life. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I do, I have thought a lot about what can you do? I mean, there's sort of the breathe in, breathe out. One thing that was helpful to me, I don't know if I'm sure you know this, but if you're trying to do deep breathing as a way to calm down, focus on breathing out, not breathing in. Like, you know, like let's say you have to get up on stage or something because breathing in, you can kind of start gasping and that makes you more anxious. But when you're breathing out, that's more relaxing. I found that to be really helpful myself. Just in. That's a great tip. Yeah. Do you, you said you do that before you go on stage. Yeah. If I need to calm myself down, because I would find that I would sort of go, <gasps> it's, you know, it yeah. almost can make you feel overly, I, I don't know, it's not as calming, but there's something about thinking about breathing out where it's really the, <sighs> yeah. that's the calming part. Yeah. So I found that to be very helpful. That is actually really helpful. And also when you're anxious, breathing in is really hard because your chest is tight, your belly's constricted. It's just physically tough. Here's something interesting that I just noticed, you know, if we're like kind of trading tips. Let's do it. Let's do it. So I had been reading this memoir by Andrew McCarthy. You know, he was part of the Brat Pack. Now he creates television, but um, he's also in a lot of movies. And he was talking about how for some actors holding a prop or working with a prop really helps. And for other actors, it's very distracting. And he's like, it's just like a thing that actors have. And he knows that he does much better with a prop. And I realized that like instinctively, I had realized that I do better when I have a prop, meaning like I'm holding a pen in my hand or I'm holding a coffee mug. Like there's just something about having something in my hands that makes me feel calmer. And I asked around like on social media, as one does, and so many people were like, I hold a clipboard. I hold like I teach with a like a stone in my hand. There's something about just like having something in your hand. Yep. And like I had to get my picture taken recently, which is, you know, one of my least favorite things to do. And I, and I said to them, because it's sort of on, you know, it's sort of typical of me. I said, can I hold a pen for, in the photograph? And it helped me feel so much more natural. If, if I'm even at a cocktail party, I'll often just hold a pen. <laughs> and I, it's like, I don't know why, but it just, it, you know, I guess it's the groundingness of it or, you know, having something to do with your hands. It's, I think that's one reason people pull out their phones is they need to have something in their hands. It's like It doesn't have well, to be a phone. And actually to come back to Andrew McCarthy, I swear to God, it's why so many of us used to smoke <gasps> oh, because absolutely. Right, we'd be anxious oh. in social situations. Oh, and it would give you something to do when you look busy. So if you're like, oh, is everybody mm-hmm. thinking like she's all alone by herself and she's not talking to anybody? It's like, oh, she's just pulling out a pack of cigarettes. No, a friend of mine said to me who really, really had a hard time quitting smoking said, if I were a teenager today and I could pull out my phone, I don't think I ever would have started smoking. I only started smoking for anxiety. It wasn't yeah. like I even enjoyed the cigarettes. I just wanted the the busyness of it. 100%. So do you know the orange trick, the orange exercise? No. What is this? Oh, you're going to love it because it's ultra multisensory. All right. So this is a really commonly used therapeutic exercise where you hold an orange in your hand. Mm-hmm. And first you feel the orange, mm-hmm. you feel its weight, you feel its roundness, you come to sense that, and then you might smell the orange, mm-hmm. right? And you get that involved. And then you kind of see, you might even like peel back a little of its peel and see if the smell spreads and how it spreads around you. It's a really amazing grounding technique. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and then it's interesting because with an orange, like you have the taste of the segment which is can mm-hmm. be sweet or sour and then you have the taste of the rind which is bitter so you yeah there's so much complexity there yeah it's kind of like the five four three two one yep yep but with something that is kind of anchoring you oh and there's just something i feel like oranges are auspicious there's something very beautiful about oranges 
Okay, so Gretchen, I, I feel like a lot of my listeners probably know who you are. Mm. They probably know of your book, The Happiness Project. And I love your podcast. I actually credit your podcast, Happier. I would walk off my baby weight after my third baby. Oh. We lived in a really hilly neighborhood, oh. and I would listen to your show <laughs> while walking up hills. Oh. In my book, I wrote a book about habit formation called Better Than Before, and I called that the strategy of pairing which is where you take something that you really like to do or want to do and pair it with something that you're kind of trying to get yourself to do. Like my sister um, loves The Real Housewives and so she only watches The Real Housewives when she's on the treadmill. So same idea. Okay, so quickly for listeners mm -hmm. who may not you know, know your stuff, what is it that you do? Now I do many things. I am a writer of books. I, I am the, the founder and the host of a podcast, as you mentioned, Happier with Gretchen Rubin. I have an app called the Happier app. I have created journals and other products. But what I really study is human nature and happiness. So I'm interested in how do we make our lives happier, healthier, more productive, more creative? How can we change if we want to change? Why are we the way we are? So I'm really interested in, you know, in human nature. That's, that's what I study. Are you a happy person by nature? You know, I'm pretty happy. And I, you know, I've done those tests. And what, what I find is like, I'm sort of a seven on the one to 10 scale. So I'm not, I'm not like a nine. I'm not a tigger. But then I'm not an Eeyore either. Um, so I'm kind of a good stand in. When they look around the world, most people say that they're either pretty happy or very happy. So, you know, I'm pretty happy. Interesting. Yeah, I always wonder, I, I love to know if what people sort of feel like their baseline nature is. Yes. Like, I'm not happy. I, I actually went to family camp mm. for vacation last week with my with my husband and kids to my son's sleepaway camp. They had a family camp. And about halfway through, my husband turned to me and he said, you're happy. Mm. And I, I realized the second part of that sentence is, you're not usually happy because <laughs> I'm not. So what was it? What was the situation? that Play, play, mm. literal play, soccer, pickleball, running around playing stupid camp games, canoeing, doing art projects, skits, like literally playing. So now are you thinking about how you're going to incorporate that into your daily life? That doesn't sound impossible. I really want to. Do you have advice? Well, this gets to my four tendencies framework because my advice would be different uh, depending on tendencies. Why don't you set up the tendencies yeah. and I'll, I'll tell you what I think I am, but don't literally know for sure. Okay, good. So the four tendencies is a personality framework that I discovered when I was studying habits. And because I started noticing all these patterns and how people sort of could or couldn't successfully form habits. And I got my big insight when a friend said to me, you know, when I was in high school, I was on the track team and I never missed track practice. But even though I know going running makes me happier, I can't go running now. Mm. And so I was like, well, why? And, and after just an immense amount of intellectual effort, I figured out that it really comes down to the, an idea of expectations, how we respond to expectations, which sounds kind of dry, but ends up being really, really juicy. So mm. I'll quickly explain the four tendencies. And most people know what they are right away. They can do their sweethearts. They can do their kids, their colleagues. They can do people. We could do Game of Thrones characters. I'll just describe it briefly. But if people want to take a quiz and like get an answer, they can go to quiz.gretchenrubin.com and that will give you an answer and a little report. And that's free and quick, like 
three and a half million people have taken that quiz. Wow. But most people don't, you don't even need to take the quiz. This is really obvious once you know. Okay. So what we're looking at is how you respond to expectations. So all of us face outer expectations, like a work deadline. And we also face inner expectations, like my own desire to keep a New Year's resolution. So depending on whether you meet or resist outer and inner expectations, that makes you an upholder, a questioner, an obliger, or a rebel. <laughs> so upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. They meet the work deadline, they keep the New Year's resolution without much fuss. They want to know what other people expect from them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important or maybe more important. Mm -hmm. So their motto is, discipline is my freedom. <laughs> Then there are questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. They resist anything arbitrary, inefficient, unjustified. They're always asking why. They tend to love to customize. They tend to love research. So they're making everything an inner expectation. Once it meets their inner standard of making sense, they'll do it. Yep. If it fails their standard, they will push back. Mm -hmm. So their motto is... If you convince me why, then I will comply. Then there are obligers. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. So this is my friend on the track team. When she had a team and a coach expecting her to show up, she showed up no problem. When she was just trying to go on her own, she struggled. And the biggest takeaway of the four tendencies, I think, is this, and that's for obligers, which is if you want to meet an inner expectation as an obliger, you have to create a form of outer accountability. If you want to mm. read more, join a book group. You want to exercise, join a, a class, work with a trainer, do it with a friend who's going to be annoyed if you don't show up, raise money for a charity, anything to get that outer accountability. And so the motto of obliger is you can count on me. And I'm counting on you to count on me. Yeah. And then finally, rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer, inner, alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. They can do anything they want to do, anything they choose to do. But if you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. And typically, they don't tell themselves what to do. Like, they don't sign up for a 10 a.m. woodworking class on Saturday because they think, well, I don't know what I want to, I'm going to want to do on Saturday. And just the idea that it's on my calendar is going to annoy me. So their motto is, uh, you can't make me and neither can I. <laughs> so those are the big, those are the four. The biggest group for both men and women is obliger. You either are an obliger, you have many obligers in your life. Second biggest is questioner. The smallest tendency is rebel. And mm -hmm. uh, my tendency, the upholder tendency is only slightly larger. Those are sort of the two extreme personality types. <laughs> um, a lot of people are obligers and questioners. It's so fascinating. And I was actually thinking about the four tendencies in the context of this show, mm -hmm. because we actually talk a lot about expectations, because this show is called The Anxious Achiever. Yes. And when you're achieving, you are trying to meet someone's expectations. Yes. The anxiety happens when the expectations are perhaps out of scale or out of step with reality. Yes. And so many anxious achievers, I think, are almost racing against both their own expectations and what they perceive to be other people's expectations. 
Well, in that context, I should mention something called obliger rebellion, (laughs) which is very much what you're talking about. So obliger rebellion arises when an obliger is in a situation where expectations have become kind of unsupportable, where Mm -hmm. an obliger feels ignored, exploited, taken advantage of, unheard, where they just can't manage expectations. Because what will happen is they will meet, 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 meet expectations, and then suddenly they snap with the Blige Rebellion and they say, this I will not do. And sometimes it's small and kind of funny, like, hey, Mara, I'm not going to answer your emails for two weeks. Or it can be really big, like, I'm going to quit this job today, right now. I'm walking out the door yeah. because I've had it. This is over. Our 20-year friendship, it's over. Our marriage, it's over. And it's meant, sort of like you say, to, to preserve a, an obliger when expectations become unmanageable. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes it can be beneficial, but it can also be destructive. And obligers often don't understand what is happening. They will say things like, I'm acting out of character. I don't understand why I'm acting like this. I don't, I don't feel like I'm acting like myself. And they use metaphors of explosion. It's not something that they're controlling. It's something that mm. just kind of erupts. But if you know about this pattern, you can see it coming a mile away. You see the building resentment. You see the building anger. You see the behaviors starting to shift. So you can either as an obliger yourself or as somebody who's working or or living with an obliger, you can try to intervene and and fix the situation. What about upholder rebellion? So I think also anxious achievers, I'm trying to mix frameworks here, so it may not quite work, but, (laughs) but, but anxious achievers are equally intrinsically motivated, even if that intrinsic motivation is a learned behavior. So that's where it gets tricky. Well, actually, upholders tend to suffer from this much, much less. Really? Because upholders have, can meet an inner expectation. An upholder can say, like, I know you want me to work late today, but, you know, on Wednesday I have my yoga class, so I have to go to yoga. Or, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to work on Saturdays. And they tend to feel very comfortable saying to somebody, like, I can't do what you want because I have to do what I want. And that can make them seem cold to others because an obliger is like, well, if you needed my help, I would help you. So I don't understand, like, why you're off doing your own thing. But to an upholder, that feels that feels right. And so upholders mm. do tend to be better about sort of following their inner expectations for themselves. Their boundaries. You do get upholders. Sometimes you have a upholder rebellion. And usually what they do is they try to somehow mute the sound of others' expectations. So like I have a writer friend who's an upholder. And she, when she's writing, she goes very much out of touch unless there's like an emergency. She doesn't like work at home where somebody could just open the door and stick their head in. She like works someplace where she'd have to be tracked down, Mm -hmm. you know, and everybody who knows her is like, it's if you're if you're texting me or calling me in the middle of a workday, somebody better be like, you know, in dire straits. This isn't like, hey, I can't find the the new ketchup bottle. (laughs) And because she she needs she can do it on her own, but she doesn't she gets distracted with expectation. Do you question the origin of expectations? Because this is what I keep coming back to is that, you know, and I'm a big CBT sort of internal schemas person, but like your expectations that feel internal. Mm hmm may not be your true intrinsic motivation. It may be a learned behavior. Oh, 100%. That is not good for you. Oh, 100%. And, and this is something that, again, I see a lot in obligers where they think there's an expectation, but, you know, everybody expects me to make Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> Do they? <laughs> you know, or like, well, I have to be the one to put together the deck. Why? Right. 
Why are you, you know, so I think it's, I think it's really important to say to yourself, like, and this is why I think it can be really helpful for the tendencies to talk amongst themselves. Because like, if you're in a blight <laughs> or you, you tend to take expectations on, like, you, you can ask a friend, like, is this reasonable? Like, should I do this? Like, I'm in a polder married to a questioner. And I often will sort of too readily do something just because that's my inclination. That's my tendency. It's like, if I can do it, I do it. And I'll <laughs> say to Jamie, my husband, like, should I do this? And he'll say, why would you do that? And I'm like, you're right. <laughs> you know, so sometimes just having saying, I'm not going to commit right away. I'm always going to take a beat and say, oh, let me check my calendar and, you know, or let, let me check what else is, is going on this month and give yourself a moment to say, is this something that I really want or that is really an expectation that is reasonable for me to take on? Or am I too readily taking on an expectation or unthinkingly taking on an expectation. I mean, one place you see this play out, especially in the before times, is in the office kitchen. Mm. Like you would see the signs people post and I'm like, oh, I can tell their tendency right away from what they're saying. Because obligers are like, I'm always the one unloading the dishwasher. Why doesn't everybody else do it? And it's like, yeah, because upholders, questers, and rebels probably aren't going to do that. So they're the ones that post the like, your mom doesn't live here. Exactly. Put your dishes in the way. A hundred percent. 100%. So my answer is it should be someone's job. Someone should have the job of unloading the dishwasher. That's part of their job. Because if you're just expecting people to volunteer, it's going to be obligers who do it probably. And they're going to and they're going to eventually resent it as well they should. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart and this is Everyday Better. Positivity is just a belief that there are good things even in the midst of a broken world. Post-traumatic growth is about actually growing stronger as a result of trauma. The universe only has one chance to see through your eyes. Give yourself that much respect and your life that much respect. Join me every week to explore the stories and ideas that show us how we can live even better every single day with people who are changing the world. Tune in to my weekly podcast, Everyday Better, wherever you like to listen. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. How do you see the tendencies in the framework of intersectionality and how we are acculturated and raised and society's expectations of us. Mm. Well, I'm a big believer in the genetic roots of personality. So I do believe that the four, I think you're brought, you're born with your tendency. It's part of what you bring into the world with you. It's hardwired. Mm -hmm. So it's not affected by things like generation or birth order or what country you're in. But of course, I mean, at the same time, culture, experience, time is going to have a huge influence. So if you're a questioner and you're born in North Korea, you're going to learn to shut that down. If you're a questioner <laughs> in Silicon Valley, it might be your greatest asset. And then also sometimes people will reframe the same behavior depending on context and culture. So I've talked to people who are like, hey, listen, you know me, I give 110% to my clients. I'm always there for a client, morning, noon, and night. I'm there for my clients. Do I have time to exercise? No, I don't. Do I have time to eat right? No, I don't, because I'm the kind of person who's always there for my clients. And then there are people who are like, you know, I'm great at work, but I can't keep my promises to myself. I've tried and failed to exercise. I don't eat right. Like, I don't know what's wrong with me. 
And I'm like, it's the same behavior, but one person's taking pride in it and the other person is really beating themselves up. And so part of it is like, how are you framing it? And I think that is something where the basic pattern is the same, but kind of the layers that we use to interpret it kind of make it come out differently, which is why I try to keep it as like, as plain as possible Mm -hmm. um, in terms of like, like I don't talk about motivation because motivation Mm -hmm. is kind of a tricky concept. I just talk about expectation because that's just like something is expected. Yeah. Um, Wherever it's coming from and whatever it is, it's just an expectation. Interesting. Okay. So I think I'm a questioner. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Because I don't do anything Mm -hmm. unless I think it aligns. Mm -hmm. That's why I've can only work for myself. Yes, that's something questioners often say. And I like literally, if I think something's stupid, mm-hmm. I won't do it. Yep. But when I love my work and I'm aligned, I'm the best worker there is. And I have extremely disciplined and high inner expectations mm-hmm. that I really, you know, I'm pretty consistent at meeting. Mm-hmm. Does it bother you when things are arbitrary? That's often a big sign of questioner. 100%. Yeah, they often like get there in five seconds. It's like they object to so many things that just to them seem arbitrary. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you definitely do sound questioner. Those like when you were young, did people did like teachers and things say that you asked too many questions? Or did people around you sometimes seem drained by your questions when you're just like, hey, I'm just trying to figure this out? I'm I'm extremely draining to everyone I meet. I'm pretty sure. (laughs) I've I've actually been accused of being that. That's a thing that questioners need to manage, questioner adults and questioner children, because if you have a thin-skinned boss, if you have a teacher who feels like their authority is being questioned, like, because a questioner, they're like, well, I just want to understand, like, why are we doing this? Because, like, I don't understand why all you lemmings are going along with this, but I got to get to the bottom of it. And that's why they add so much value, because they, they keep everybody from wasting our time, energy, or money. But in some circumstances... You know, you get a boss who's like, well, look, you're questioning my judgment. You're not a team player. I don't want to work with you. And it's like, I'm the biggest team player there is because I'm the one who's looking after this team. And why are we going to change to this nonsense software? Well, and why don't you understand that this rule is stupid? Well, and there you go. Stupid. It's stupid, right? You can see how a questioner child could get in trouble with that. They march up to their teacher and they're like, "Why? it's stupid for me to write a book report. You know, I read the book. And the teacher's like, you do it because I'm the teacher. And the kid's like, okay, no, I'm not going to do that because that's like the dumbest thing I ever heard, right? Whereas the teacher, if the teacher knows about the tendencies, the teacher can be like, you know, I know you read the book, but what I want to see is your ability to put thoughts into your own words and to, to, to summarize things concisely. And these are skills that will serve you well your entire life. And this is just an exercise to help you work on those skills. And then the kid will be like, oh, okay, I got it. That makes, I see that that's right. important. Like a hundred page book in a one paragraph. I see why that's handy skill. Uh, okay. And then they're with the program. You know, it's it doesn't take much often, but they got to see that justification or they're not going to get on board. And it sounds like you're, it sounds like that's you. <laughs> I, I failed, I failed music in college because one of our final assignments was to go see a concert and then write an essay about it. And I guess I had sports practice. I couldn't make the concert. So I just listened to the piece of music in my room and wrote the essay and they failed me. Oh my God. And I was like, this is so stupid. I mean, it's the same piece of music. That is so questioner. 
That is so questioner. <laughs> because the thing is, if the person had said, I want this exercise to be about the experience of live performance, that there is something that nothing can right. capture, you have to be there. The little mistakes, the, the response of the audience, how it reflects around the room. I want you to be listening for like, you know, go to different parts of the room, closer, further. Are there acoustic problems? Are you hearing outside noise? And you would have been like, oh, I get it. That is what is supposed to happen. I have to be there in person for this exercise to work. Yeah. And I'll figure it out. But if somebody's just like, hey, do it my way because I say so, a question is going to be like, no, this comes up in medicine a lot because you might say to somebody, you need to walk a mile before breakfast every day. Or like, you need to take this medication with food. And they're like, well, it's really easier for me to take it with my, my morning cup of coffee. And it's like, you need to say to them, take this with food or otherwise you'll be nauseated or you need to, right. you know, can you walk? Can you swim? Can you run? Can you bike? Like a questioner's like, Walking a mile is so arbitrary. Like, there's a million ways I could exercise. Like, I'm not going to do that just because you told me to. Do you believe in the typologies of introversion and extroversion? What a fascinating question. Um, you know, for me, because I'm sort of a street scientist, I think that frameworks are, the proof is in the pudding. Mm. That the frameworks are useful if they help us understand ourselves and other people better and if they help us kind of develop a shorthand. And so I think it's clear to me that this typology does allow people to succinctly explain something about the circumstances in which they thrive in a way that we can all kind of understand and then kind of help people with that aim. If, if I know this about you, how can I act on that to sort of help you and help me and help the situation? So, so I think it is, I think it is very useful. Yeah. Well, and that's your tendencies where it's like, how, how, what do I know about you and how does that inform our relationship? Yeah. Now, some people will say, well, if you define me, you can find me. And certainly you don't want any kind of label like this to make people feel cramped or like they can't change their identities if they want to. But I do think that for most of us, having a kind of shorthand way to communicate kind of large patterns is very useful. And it also makes it less personal. It's like, it's not that I don't like you, but, you know, I just don't like a big 200 person holiday party. Like, let's you let's you and me go get coffee. I would that would be really fun for me. And then I'll really get to catch up with you. And and I'm just not going to come to your holiday party because, you know, I'm an introvert and people will be like, oh, OK. Like, it's not that you don't like me and you don't care about our friendship. It's like, that's just not for you. Do you consider yourself an introvert? Well, Susan Kane gave me, her, you know, she says that I'm an ambivert. Because <laughs> I was describing myself and she's like, I think she's like, there are not that many ambiverts, but you sound like a real ambivert. So I think I'm an ambivert. What makes you an ambivert? Well, because I love spending time by myself. I love silence. I'm a writer who's, you know, who like I do podcasts and things like that. But but a, a huge amount of my time is me alone working and I thrive on that and I need that. But then I also love, unlike many authors, I love a book tour. I love interviewing people for the podcast. I like going to big conferences. Um, I miss that, you know, during the COVID time. You know, I really like going out. I really like, I like a big group. I like a small group. I like meeting new people. I find that energizing. So I really need both. You really do sound like an ambivert. Mm, good. Okay. I've got a double, double diagnosis. I mean, I will never take on Susan Cain because she's a goddess and the upholder of all of modern introversion. But, you know, I sort of think of it in the kind of original Jungian way of energy transfer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I'm a really gregarious, talkative, loud introvert. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And 
I seem like an extrovert, mm-hmm. but I'm really an introvert. Because mm-hmm. that's where you get your energy. That's where I get my energy. And it's a really big effort for me to go out, to go to a conference. Like All of that for me would take planning. It would take intentionality about when I get to go away. And it's just something I have to like, I love it, mm-hmm. but do it sparingly and intentionally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Whereas I I don't feel that kind of energy drain. I don't have to manage the energy drain to that degree. Yeah. 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 But I think it's that it is really helpful. And I think that idea of energy is really very clarifying. I agree. I think that's the most helpful way to think about it because it's not that one is better or worse, but it's just like, well, what ener- where do you derive your energy? Yeah. Yeah. 100%, 100%. That's a great question generally in life. Like even like as you go through your workday, what tasks give you energy? You're going through your day, what people give you energy? There was this huge like business study where they said they were trying to figure out like why certain kinds of informal networks of information transfer formed and like what made people connect with other people in complex organizations. And they found that you could just say to somebody, does this person energize you or drain you? And that would kind of explain everything. Because sometimes people who are very quiet are energizing because because they're effective and they push the ball forward and they get things done or they're, you know, whatever they're doing. So it's not like you have to be loud. Sometimes kind of the loud extroverted people might be draining, you know, so it's a very clarifying kind of fundamental question that I think kind of eliminates other things that are kind of can can feel meaningful, but can also be sort of noise that um, is not that useful. 100%. I mean, I think what this, all of this comes back to is a human's need to make meaning, right? We need to make meaning. We need to have frameworks to make meaning every day, but but also the importance of being self-aware and tuning in. Oh my gosh. Yes. I think self-knowledge is so important. And you know, it's so hard. You think, oh, I just hang out with myself all day long. Like what's more obvious, but it's just the great challenge of our lives. I think I, I spend so much time asking myself questions to try to understand myself I, 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 and how I'm like other people and different. I, I, I 100% agree with you. Okay. So let's go back to the creativity and play because mm. this is something I've been thinking about. You know, I, I just read some incredible data and what it basically boils down to is why do we have great ideas in the shower? Why does a week of play make us feel generative and excited? Because we are always in executive function overdrive when we're working, Mm -hmm. when we're busy. And I think working at home and being on Zoom all day for a lot of us, and even if you're writing all day, like you are in executive functioning overdrive. Mm -hmm. And your brain is just, the CPU is busy doing Mm -hmm. that. The parts of your brain that activate creativity and generativity aren't being called upon. And it's the break that you need. I agree. And so I'm writing a book about the five senses and tapping into the five senses. And so one of the exercises that I did was I li- I'm extremely fortunate. I live within walking distance of the Metropolitan Museum in New York City. And so I said, for a year, I'm going to go every day that it's open, that I'm in town. And now I've done it for a lot longer than a year because I just love it so much. And it's exactly what you say. Like, I walk through those doors and it's like, I do whatever I want. I think about whatever I want. People are like, is this meditation? I'm like, I think it's the opposite of meditation because I'm just like letting my mind off the leash. And I've had some, and I'm also walking, which is great for creativity, but I've had some of my best ideas while I was at the Met because it's just, it's like you say, it's just the mind running free and, uh, and it's so restorative. Mm, I, oh gosh, I love that. Yeah. 
It's funny. I thought I was pretty idiosyncratic about like, I really wanted to go every day, not just some days or most days, but you know, every day I possibly could. And it's, and it's interesting how when you do something every day, it really changes it. And a lot more people than I, than I thought do this. I didn't realize it's not that uncommon. Like people will like walk to the same spot of a river or like a guy was telling me he went to the CVS every day. I'm like, <laughs> I could see that, you know, like, it'd be interesting to see like, how does it change and who's there? And I, I don't know if there's something about doing something every day that that appeals to a certain kind of person, of which I definitely am. I play Met Roulette. That's when I, I have this giant book of the Met and I open it up at random and read about a, an object and then go look for it. That's fun. Um, yeah, it's so fun because you're right. Play. We need play. We need a break. We need to let our mind off the leash. How do we do it? Well, like this for me works really well. I'm in a polder. So having something that goes on my calendar every day, it's like, I know it's going to happen. And, you know, I can move it around within limits because the Met is open. I can tell you exactly when the Met is open every single day. <laughs> but I think for some people, it, you know, it, yeah, if you're like in a polder and a bleacher, you might put it on the calendar. If you're, uh, you know, if you're a rebel, you know, they tend to want to do things spontaneously. They don't like feeling hemmed in. So mm-hmm. they might just keep a could do list in their phone of like, hikes that they've been wanting to do. And then when they feel like it, they just go for a hike. And it's like, oh, yeah, the, I, I wanted to check that out. A could-do list. I love that. Oh, yeah. The to-do list and the could-do list because rebels won't do a to-do list. But you know what works for obligers is a to-da list. They often do better when they remember <laughs> everything they've already done. It gives them it gives them encouragement. But you know what a lot of people say is, this is funny, a surprising number of people want to read more, which I, I'm a huge reader, so I'm always very encouraged by hearing that. And one thing that a lot of people do is they check out books from the library because they're like, I have to finish it mm-hmm. by the due date because then someone might be waiting for it. And so that gives them, again, that feeling of outer accountability to read, even though for some people reading is like, oh, well, that's leisure time. So it always gets pushed to the bottom of the list. But it's like, well, I have to read because otherwise someone else won't get a chance because I'll be holding on to the book. I want to round out here. You have a media company. You're also yourself a leader, Mm -hmm. a manager, Mm -hmm. right? How does knowing that you're an upholder, mm. affect your management. And in and, and general, I mean, Gretchen, you have to be one of the most self-aware people on the planet. Oh, I don't know about that. but <laughs> Well, I mean, just looking at your of, like, you have to be. So how do you use that to inform your leadership every day? Well, it's, it's incredibly helpful because, as I said, upholders, because uh, I'm an upholder, they can't seem cold and they can often not understand how other people need things to be set up differently. And like, just as an example, this was a while back. I was working with somebody on a podcast. My view is like, I want to send an email when the thought occurs to me. And like, Mm -hmm. I work, I love to work. I work all the time. I work at five in the morning. I work Christmas day. I work on Sunday. And, and I would just send emails whenever something occurred to me. And my view was like, I don't have to be your babysitter. Do your work in your own way. If you want to work regular hours and not check your email in between, that's fine. Like, we're not doing surgery here. Like, just wait. <laughs> but I was working with somebody who was an obliger, and I heard indirectly that she was very resentful. She felt like I wasn't respecting work-life balance mm-hmm. and that every time I sent her an email at these odd times, she felt pressure to respond. And she was getting very, very uh, resentful. So then the question becomes, okay, I'm in a polder, she's an obliger. Do we go to HR? Does she have to learn to work my way? Do I have to learn to work her way? Like, do we look up research? And what it was is I learned how to use delay delivery in Outlook. And so I would send the emails when the thought occurred to me and she would get the email, she would get like 10 emails at 8 a.m. on Monday morning. And we both worked in our own way. 
But knowing that I'm an upholder, it makes me much more aware. Like I need to remember to say things to people like, let me know if the timing is bad or mm -hmm. I need this by Friday instead of just assuming that someone will do it right away the way I would. I need to give them a deadline or if it's a questioner, I'm asking you because why am I asking you of this? If it's a rebel, I work with some rebels and I'm like, if this feels like the kind of thing that would work for you, that would be interesting to you, that would help you with your own audience, like, let me know. And like, maybe we can work something out if it feels right, if you want to, you know, I don't, I don't say like, hey, you know, a rebel told me that somebody sent an email that said uh, in the subject line, important, read immediately. And he deleted it because he's like, yeah, it's not that important. I'm not going to read it. Oh, my God. So again, like knowing these things. So knowing that I'm an upholder, it makes me realize like, I don't want to burden people mm -hmm. with unreasonable expectations, assuming that they will manage those expectations on their side. I need to be aware of that. I know the tendency of everybody that I work with and I think about it like, am I giving this person enough reasons? Am I giving this person enough accountability? It's very helpful. Oh, God. And, you know, the thing is, how much anxiety can you remove yes. from the workplace just by understanding this? Like, I can't tell you how many complaints I get from people who feel like, their boss is emailing them. It breaks every boundary. It yeah. makes them so anxious. Are they working enough? Am I going to get fired? Right. Like, lit and I always say, reduce anxiety through clarity. Yes. Yes. And that's what, yes. that's what this is. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of times, you know, we tend to think like kind of make everything very personal. And often it's just like, like my husband is a questioner. And one thing that's sort of funny about questioners is they often don't like to answer questions. I don't know if you have this as a questioner, but like <laughs> he really doesn't like to answer questions. He'll teach or, you know, but he won't just kind of casually answer questions. Ironic, but true. And it used to really bother me. I'd be like, what is it about a relationship? Like, is he deliberately like trying to tweak me? Does he think it's funny to annoy me? Why is he slowing me down? Like, why is everything a conversation? Like, what does this mean about us? And I'm like, he's like this with everybody. It has nothing to do with me. This is just his perspective on the world. And a lot of times it's very valuable to me. I really gained from it. And sometimes it kind of annoys me, but it has nothing to do with our relationship. It's just, it's just his way. It's the questioner mm. way. And then sometimes people, they're anxious about other people, but then they also get so discouraged about themselves. And an obliger yeah. might say, I don't understand it. I keep my promises to other people, but I can't keep my promises to myself. People keep telling me to make time for self-care and I never can do it. What's wrong with me? And I'm like, there's nothing wrong with you. A lot of people feel exactly the same way. And there's a billion tools that you can use to achieve the aim you want for yourself. You just have to do it in the right way. Set yourself up for success. Don't want to try to fit yourself into somebody else's template. Don't let somebody else tell you, you know, this always works for me. I just, you know, I just make a priorities list and I just come in and do it every morning at 7 a.m. And you should be able to do that. It's like whenever people say you should be able to do something, I'm like, eh, probably Mm. Not. I mean, why should you? No. You could do it well, a different way. Well, that's my answer as a questioner. Yeah. Who says? Yeah. Who says? Why should I? Do it a different way. You know, do it your own way. And then we all gain so much from the other four tendencies. Yeah. You know, I mean, e each tendency has strengths and weaknesses. And so we really like, by being around all the tendencies, you can really like gain their strengths. And then everybody can shore up each other's weaknesses as well and limitations. Mm. Well, Gretchen Rubin, thank you so much. I've learned so much. Oh, this is, I so enjoy talking to you. I feel like we could talk all day. I know. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Duke. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the great LinkedIn Presents family and to all of our guests for sharing their stories. 
If you love the show, tell your friends or leave us a review. You can always tweet me at MoraAM or find me on LinkedIn where you can follow me, leave me a message, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the anxious achiever world. Thanks for listening.